0: Well, my friends, you guys know me. I'm Beto Gudino, the host of the Christian podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Mark Charles. And as I was even talking to some friends about today's podcast, they said he must be like super cool guy because he's got two first names. So there you go. <laughs> That's how we started. Uh, but I want to say, kind of where I met you, Mark. Uh, so it gives a little bit of um, you no know, scope of what we're gonna talk about. Cause I I went to one of your conferences at Biola University here in Southern California, and and you were giving a, a lecture to you no know, maybe like a hundred people. I remember the room was packed, like people couldn't even fit, and. Uh, You were talking about this idea of colonization and the doctrine of discovery. And this is, I mean, like three years ago, even before, you know, your uh, presidential campaign launch and stuff like that, which we're going to talk about uh, today. But first, I really want to the reason why I went to that lecture that you gave is because I am from Mexico. I come from Guadalajara, Jalisco. And I mean, now I've been living here in in California for about 15 years. But when you said, when I read colonization, it just, I mean, coming from Mexico, it just right away brought me to like, yeah, I was raised with, you know, we have colonial buildings in our city. You know, the city was founded, um, the city of Guadalajara, about 550 years ago. So I mean, it's an old city. And you can see the architecture and stuff like that. So when I went to your class, it was just like eye-opening. I, like, wow. Like, I, I, It was so unbelievable. And I want to hear from you your perspective because you're in um, with just like a little bit of your background. I know you're, you're like half native um, and you have like dual citizenship, citizenship. So could you tell us a little bit about who Mark Charles Yes?
1: Absolutely. So please let me introduce myself first traditionally. So, Ya Te, Mark Charles, Inishia, Sin Bakedine Basishin, Sin In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. Now, my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother is which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father is also and then my fourth clan, my father's father's and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also just want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from Washington, D.C., and the lands where I live here in the District of Columbia are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. So it's the Piscataway Nation that lived here, they hunted here, they farmed here, they fished here. Their lands were here long before Columbus got lost at sea, and they were the nation that was removed from these lands so the District of Columbia, the state of Maryland, the state of Virginia could be built up. And so I want to honor the Piscataway as being the host people of these lands, and I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands for these hundreds, even thousands of years. Um, so yeah, I'm, I am a, uh, a dual citizen of the United States and the Navajo Nation. My mother is American of Dutch heritage. My father is Navajo, and I am not half Navajo and half Dutch or half American. I am Navajo-Navajo and I am Dutch, and I am American. And so I've, I've chosen very much to not allow blood quantum to identify me, but to allow my identity and to embrace as fully as I can the I- identity of both my mother's son as well as my father's son, and then try to understand how do I live and how do I be a part of a nation where, where these identities are very much mixed or they're all together so yeah a lot of my work over the past uh 20 years of my life has been trying to reconcile um the relationship between my mother and my father or even concile you might want to say the relationship between my mother and my father and my the identity that i have within me um you know it started really when i was um this was around 20 years ago, early 2000s, I was called as a pastor of a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center. And uh, it was a a native church started by the the Christian Reformed denomination. And this church was that denomination's ministry to the native community of Denver for about 50 years. And I was the first native pastor they had had in several years at this church. And when I arrived there, one of the first questions the the council, the elders and deacons of the church said to me in our first council meeting was they said their last pastor introduced them to the idea of contextualizing worship. Um, What did it mean to be both native and a Christian? How could worship of Christ be contextualized for native culture? And they wanted me to lead in that process. And they introduced me to a group of indigenous Christians from all over the world who were meeting at a time with a group gathering called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. Uh, they met that first year, I think it was 2001, 2002, in Hawaii, hosted by the native Hawaiians. Um, we've also met in Sweden, hosted by the Samis. We've met in uh, uh, New Zealand, hosted by the Maori. We've met in Israel, hosted by... um messianic jewish leaders who understand their identity both as jewish and as christian people and so i've been with this i've been with that group for almost a decade um, meeting with them learning from the stories of what was happening in indigenous communities all over the world who were trying to decolonize their faith trying to understand what does it mean to be both indigenous and christian um, which is a challenge the church has been wrestling with since the Acts to community, right? You know, I mean, Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah, and he ministered and taught among Jewish people. And it wasn't really until Cornelius, who Peter went to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, This is even after the Acts Two community, which the Acts community was mostly Jewish people. It was it was Jewish people, Jews from all over the world, but people assimilated culturally to the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. And yet, in in I think it's Acts nine or ten, we have Cornelius, who is a Gentile, and he the Spirit speaks to Cornelius to call Peter, and the the Spirit speaks to Cornelius or to Peter to go to Cornelius. And Peter shows up at Cornelius' house and says, I'm not even supposed to be here. I'm a Jew. You're a Gentile. I should not be around you, but the Spirit sent me here. And Cornelius hears the message that Peter brings, and then the Spirit of God falls on Cornelius and his family. And this kind of freaks Peter out. He's not prepared for that, Right. Even after spending three years with Jesus, Jesus didn't minister to Gentiles. He ministered primarily to Jews. Yeah, he, he went even to the outer edges of the Jewish community with talking to Samaritans. But his primary focus was he was ministering to Jews. And so Peter was like, when he saw this, he's like, he and the people he was with, they were amazed. It really never occurred to them that the Spirit of God might fall on Gentiles. And it, if you look at the story of Acts, honestly, this is where the church falls into disarray, right? The Acts two community, which was Jewish, had this great harmony And once Cornelius and Gentiles start coming in, and then Paul is actually called as a minister to the Gentiles, this is where you have division between the disciples, you have people splitting up and going different ways, you have people getting upset, do we circumcise them, what do we do with them, what can they eat, what can't, and this is where all the division starts. And then Acts ends not with this great harmonious vision of the completion of the Acts to community, but it literally ends with Paul by himself living in an apartment talking about Jesus and supposedly writing some letters. And so this question of how do Gentiles fit into the church is... Has been a very divisive question throughout the entire history of the church. And when the church, which my book, I, I wrote a book called The Doct- Unsettling Truth, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery, which talks about the heresy of Christendom and the creation of Christian Empire, which eventually is what leads into colonialism and white supremacy that we have coming out of the church today. So, what happens is the way European Christians fit themselves into that gospel story is they basically told themselves that Jesus was white, right? These are all the pictures we have now in our Bible. Jesus was a white guy. And that's the way Western European Christianity reconciled that that tension is they just made Jesus white, which he wasn't. And so, and again, then they isolated indigenous peoples and black and brown peoples all over the nation, all over the world through their colonization. And so that even, even what Western European Christianity did, it didn't bring that sort of harmony or reconciliation into the church that the spirit of God was envisioning. And so, the question of how do we do this, there's really no manual, right? Even if you look at Jesus, he interacted with three Gentiles. He interacted with a centurion who was a Gentile, and he actually spoke kind of passive-aggressively to him. He used him he's like, even this Gentile has great faith, right? It's kind of passive-aggressive. When he goes across the lake to, to uh, heal the demoniac... Who's also a Gentile, the demoniac begs Jesus to follow him. He's like, Let me follow you. And Jesus said, No, you, you, I'm not going to let you follow me. When he heals the Greek widow's daughter, who's possessed by a demon, right? She comes to him, and Jesus says to his disciples in the book of Matthew, This is Matthew 15, he says, I came to call the lost sheep of Israel which was explain why he even went to the to Samaritans. But he, he's like, I didn't come for the Gentiles. But the woman kept pressing. And so Jesus said, why should I feed to the dogs what was meant for the children? Right? Which was a common Jewish understanding of the Gentiles. And the woman responds and says, even the dogs eat the crumbs at the table. And Jesus says, because of your answer, (laughs) I'll heal you. Basically affirming you're right. You got it. You understand it. And so even Jesus, so this is why I think Peter, when he saw the Holy Spirit fall on Cornelius and his family, he's like, I haven't been prepared for this at all. Like, I don't know what this means even jesus didn't model that this was going to happen for gentiles and th- again this is where the whole church now falls into disarray and so the question that this group was asking of what does it mean to be indigenous and be christian what does it mean to be gentiles so if 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 we were if the gentiles were dogs to the jews and we are savages to white people, right? The two groups that have held the most control over the church for the, for the past 2000 years. This is a very important question for us as individuals, like what's our role in the church and what, you know, clearly the spirit who came upon Cornelius, even as striking in Acts two, yes, the Acts two community was Jewish, but even the people were kind of amazed and they're like, Why are we hearing the gospel in our native tongue? Like, why is this not being spoken to us in Hebrew? Which is the language we had to learn to become Jews in the first place. Why is this going back to our native tongue? I think that was a hint of what the spirit wanted to do, which is to open this church up even to people who weren't converted to Judaism. And that's what we see happened in, in, um, But so anyway, so that question is of vital importance to indigenous peoples. And it's where it really kind of brought me into the conversation of what does it mean to be a Christian and yet understand that I'm indigenous, not only am I a Gentile to the Jewish community, but I'm a savage to the white community. And yet, how do I still lay claim to the Spirit of God and to the relationship that Christ came to reconcile between the Creator and His creation?
0: Wow. Yeah, because uh, from your point of view, considering your your heritage as a native, do you think at some point natives were far you know, far off better without colonization and christianity and now i mean because now you got to reconcile yourself right it's you're a christian but you also have a heritage i mean how do we reconcile how how is that impact your view of even um like latin america you know like where i come from how is that influence i mean i grew up like knowing about where i come from there's this um these pyramids that are round. And I think for, for what I've learned is the only pyramids that are round in like the whole continent, they're small. You know, they're not as big as like the Aztec or Maya uh, Mayan pyramids, but it's it's they just found them like maybe like 30 or 40 years ago, and they're close to my city. And it's just amazing when you see them from above. It's just like round circles spreading out with little niches of of roundness, um, but when it just makes me think, you know, about the people that lived there, hundreds and thousands of years ago, you no, know, before, like you were saying, you no, know, before uh, Columbus got lost at sea, and I mean, do we have to acknowledge? And I, I'm just trying to learn my own history, right? Coming from Mexico, uh, I don't, I, I love the way that you said, you know, you recognize when you introduce yourself your lineage in a sense you know where your 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 mom's heritage and your dad's heritage i'm a little lost because all i know is like my dad was born in you know in in the state of jalisco his dad was born in the state of jalisco and then from there on like i have no idea where i come from you know all i know is we we grew up in mexico and that's about it Right? Maybe we have no, because maybe my my little bit of fair skin. Well, maybe I have some sort of you no know, um, European heritage, like most likely Spanish, right? Because they were the ones that colonized that area. But I'm just like trying to learn. Um, where do I come from? What should I celebrate? You know, I grew up knowing, um, you no, know, Cristobal Colon or. Um, what do you call him? Christopher Columbus, Cristobal Colón, Discover America, right? And we had October 12th was a big festival at every school in Mexico. We're celebrating the discovery of of America, the continent, right? Not just uh, America, the United States. And it's just something that as a kid, we celebrated. It's like, okay, it's October 12th. It's the time to do it. Uh, but what are the good lessons that we can learn and or how do we look at the past and what is good to celebrate and what is where is where is the tension where do we say hmm we we, we gotta pay attention to this you know this is not a reason to sell like what what would you tell to somebody like me who's just trying to discover you know what my past is uh, I love that you also acknowledge the lands that you're on. In Washington, D.C., like, what are the lands that I'm on in California? What are the lands that I was in in Jalisco? Like, how do I acknowledge that? How do I um, celebrate that too?
1: Yeah. And that's that's where, you know, one of the primary goals of what I'm trying to do. And I talk about this a lot is this notion of common memory. So, George Erasmus is Danae leader from uh, a tribe in Canada. He used this quote when he was writing about the Truth and a Reconciliation Commission. They had it there. He said, Where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. If you want to build community, said, so you have to start by creating common memory. I love that quote. I think that quote gets to the heart of the challenges of Western colonialism and of American history, which is we don't have a common memory, we have a white majority right, that remembers, they, they tell themselves this mythological history that includes discovery and expansion, opportunity and exceptionalism. And we have our communities of color, natives, African people, Spanish and Latino, Latinx people, who have this lived history of stolen lands and broken treaties, of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of of harsh immigration policies, of boarding schools, and of massacres, of of um, mass incarceration and families being ripped apart at the borders and of, of all these things, and there's no common memory. And then you look back over our history, especially in the US and like, yeah, there's never been a point where there's been healthy community across these racial or ethnic lines. And so part of what I'm trying to do is you know i'm very adamant even though i am a christian i'm adamant i am not trying to make my nation christian i'm not trying to legislate my theologies or or compel anybody to believe anything about religion but i am trying to create a common memory and say can we talk honestly about our history you know just a few weeks ago we celebrated the fourth of july i haven't been able to celebrate the fourth of july in Many years, ever since I decided to read the document and realize that thirty lines after the statement, All Men Are Created Equal, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as savages. So the reason the founding fathers used the inclusive term all men, all men are created equal. The reason they said that is because their definition of who was human was actually very narrow and small. Natives were not considered humans. And so, therefore, the Declaration of Independence was not meant to include me as a Native man. So, therefore, I can't celebrate that holiday. You know, one of the greatest presidents of American history is Abraham Lincoln. His mythology is that he, he freed the slaves and he, he um, you know, saved our, our, our nation from division. Well, when you read his writings, he was a blatant white supremacist. And actually, we've never abolished slavery. The the 13th Amendment doesn't make slavery illegal. It redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. And between 1862 and 1865, Abraham Lincoln literally ethnically cleansed the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and the territory of New Mexico to make way for the Transcontinental Railway making him one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. So I can't celebrate Abraham Lincoln. It's like asking a Holocaust survivor to celebrate Ad- um, Adolf Hitler. You can't do it. And so this is the challenge is our nation doesn't have a common memory. We don't teach our history. We teach our mythology. And it ignores huge injustices, huge marginalizations and discrepancies and all these other things. And it it just teaches this one very simplistic mythological history that in many instances is not even remotely accurate. And so, so much of what I'm trying to do is to find a way to teach this history not to condemn and demonize people, but to say, let's look at what we're standing on. Let's look at where we've been so we can find a way to get to a better future. And I'm, this is really what's at the bulk of my work and it's what's at the heart of my campaign, which is I want to create a common memory so that for the very first time in our history we might have a nation where we the people truly means all the people
0: i love it i was i was uh no i mean before you launched your campaign i watched the uh, you have a ted talk on youtube mm-hmm. and um i mean it's really good i think you laid out super well right there for people that wanna you know go and watch it and and learn a little bit about you know, that doctrine of discovery. Um, go watch the TED Talk. Just search for Mark Charles on YouTube and you can find it. And you talk about that idea of common memory. And one thing, I'm, I'm just trying to, to figure out what is, how do you reconcile these, these ideas of nation? When, for example, when I take my kids to school, my, I have three kids, they were born here in, in the U.S., and I take them... Well, before COVID, right? I was taking them to school. And then they do this thing called the Pledge of Allegiance, I think it's called, where they say mm-hmm. I, pledge, I pledge allegiance to to the flag of the United States, right? And then it says one nation under God. Uh, but, I mean, you're saying that there's a Navajo nation within this nation that's already here, right? How does that work? I mean if if you're a native are there several nations here in the US that um they yeah. call them native so, nations how, uh, how does that work and you just give some shed some light on that
1: yeah first let me just go back to the, the ted talk you're talking about it's a tedx talk i gave about um a year and a half ago it's called we the people the three most misunderstood words in US history Um, It was at a TEDx here in the D.C. area, but it's actually um, hosted now on the TED website. So if you just search Mark the Charles, Mark Charles, We the People, you should find that TEDx talk. And I encourage people to watch it. It really lays out the history, especially how the Doctrine of Discovery gets embedded into our understanding of land titles. Um, And that serves to make white supremacy really a bipartisan value so i encourage everyone to watch that video if you're able to um the other piece is yeah there this nation right the united states of america which now encompasses all the way from the east coast to the west coast and up to alaska and hawaii um the there were nations who lived here there were groups of people who had government systems and 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 laws and societies here they weren't western and they weren't written but they were we actually had established societies here we were nations and when europeans came treaties were written and agreements were made between nations And so this is where it becomes so important, where there are literally, I think it's 400 treaties written between the US government and native nations. And the constitution states that, that treaties are the supreme law of the land. Now, just last week, we had a very um, important Supreme Court opinion delivered Um, Called, it was in McGirt versus Oklahoma. And that question was Is Oklahoma, the eastern part of Oklahoma, is it reservation land or not? And um, I won't go into all the complexities of the case. I actually have some information about it on the blog of my campaign website at markcharles2020.com. I made a statement about this opinion. And I, um, have a, I gave a live stream about that opinion, which you can find on our website. But at the center of that case was, did the, the treaties that established the eastern half of Oklahoma as reservation lands, was that still in effect? or had the state of Arizona and the history of white settlement and even the 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 congressional act of um of uh allotment disestablished those lands so they are no longer reservation land and the supreme court ruled that the state of Oklahoma the act of allotment and even the the act of settlement, did not disestablish those lands as reservation lands. And so they actually ruled in favor of the Creek Nation and in favor of McGirt, who was arguing that these were reservation lands. Now, on one hand, that's good news because it means that these lands are still reservation lands. However, multiple times throughout the opinion, which was written by Neil Gorsuch, it stated that at any point, the U.S. Congress could choose to break those treaties and disestablish those lands, and it would be done. It stated that, that the U.S. Congress has the authority to break treaties and disestablish reservations. All they have to do is, I'm quoting now, is muster the will to do so. And so this is what's so troubling, and this is where the understanding, and this is where the doctrine of discovery comes in, which literally states that because natives are savages, we are mere occupants of these lands. We are subhuman. We are not peers with Europeans. And therefore, they have at best, they have an oppressive relationship of dominion over us. And... Even at best of terms, that's laid out as a, as a parental relationship. And again, they can do whatever they want because they are the full humans in this, in this scenario according to their doctrine of discovery. And so this McGirt versus Oklahoma case was actually deeply troubling because it's the first time I've ever read an opinion by the Supreme Court that, I mean, we all know that the US government and the US Congress breaks treaties with native tribes. We know that, that's that's the history. This was the first time I've actually heard the court state that the US Congress has the right to break treaties with native nations and no one is gonna hold them accountable. That's deeply troubling, and that is rooted in this lie of what's called the doctrine of discovery.
0: Do you think you represent when when you talk about um, the native uh, nations or the native people, or you no, know, in your case the Navajo? Do you think you represent the sentiment of what what the majority of the natives are feeling? Do you think they they feel like, hey? they really took our lands do you think there's there's that that sentiment all across the board in the in the US with these um, native nations i'm not going to claim
1: to speak for
0: everybody but there is a lot
1: of agreement and sentiment that yes these lands were stolen these treaties were made and then broken these lands were ethnically cleansed and that's never been accounted for. Is everyone going to say that? No, but there's, this, there's a general sentiment, a large sentiment among Native peoples and Native nations, people from all different nations and tribes, who agree with that at some level. And what I am trying to do, even in my run for president is i want to develop a true nation to nation relationship between the us government and native nations that 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 relationship has not been i don't know if it's ever been defined as a true nation to nation relationship because of the doctrine of discovery and the way that that western europeans viewed themselves both theologically as well as in all other ways as superior over non-white people.
0: Wow. <laughs> wow. And we're talking about this idea of reconciliation that can't really happen because there hasn't been a conciliation yet and I think that this is where your your running for president campaign pro- was probably launched right in trying to in trying to bring a dialogue maybe between these nations and between this idea. And I'm just curious to understand first, what are you learning from this process of running for president of the United States? And, and in a sense, it almost feels like in order to change the system, you gotta become an insider in that system. But I love the idea that you said, I'm not here to condemn. I am here to create a common memory. So what would that look like in, in your running for president? Like, how would you create a common memory? And how do, you, how do yeah. you bring conciliation? What would that look like?
1: Yeah, so one of the primary planks of my platform is that the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. A conversation I would put on par with the truth and reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa in Rwanda and in Canada. I wouldn't call ours truth and reconciliation, though, because reconciliation implies that that there was a previous harmony, which isn't accurate. So I would use the term truth and conciliation because conciliation is merely the mediation of a dispute. Right? So if reconciliation perpetuates the myth of America, we used to be exceptional. Now we're not. Conciliation demands we have a more honest starting point. They both get us to a healthier relationship. It's just one's more honest and the other upholds the the myth or the mythology. And again, this is about creating that common memory. This is about helping our nation to be more just. This is about, so, you know, in his last State of the Union, President Obama, who experienced great divisiveness against his presidency by our nation, which is not surprising. I mean, we have a constitutional precedent that the office of the president was created solely for this position of the white landowning male. And the fact that there was a black man serving as the president of the United States was appalling to many Americans. And so, there was a lot of divisiveness about his presidency. And in his final state of the Union, he was acknowledging that and calling our nation to a new politics. And in his speech, he he actually quoted the Constitution. He said, we the people, our Constitution begins with these three simple words, words that we've come to recognize mean all the people. Now, that sounds beautiful. And he got a lot of applause for that line. but. I've studied our history, I've read the Doctrine of Discovery, I've read our Constitution. I am positive when the Founding Fathers wrote We the People, they had no intention of that ever including all the people. I am confident Abraham Lincoln did not, nor did he intend for We the People to mean all the people. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, as good as the civil rights movement was, it did not get us to we the people, meaning all the people. And President Trump demonstrates daily that he does not believe we the people means all the people. And so while that sentiment sounds beautiful, it's not accurate. And so my campaign, my campaign for president is I'm calling the question, I'm asking our nation, do we want to be a place where we the people means all the people? If we do, we have to work on our foundations. We have to deal with our history. We have to deal with our past. We have to change what we're built on. And this is the challenge of my campaign. This is what I'm trying to... Where I'm trying to get us, and so I just laid out a few weeks ago my first 100-day plan, my plan for my first 100 days in office. And I literally want to remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our foundations. On my blog, on our campaign website at markshaw2020.com, I have an edited draft of the Constitution. It doesn't change balance of powers. It doesn't change checks and balances. It doesn't change these different institutions we've set up, it does remove the racist, the sexist, and the white supremacist language. If you read the Constitution, you will find that there are 51 gender specific male pronouns, 51 he, him, and his. Now many people say, well, that's the old English. It can apply to both genders. Well, it might have, maybe in some academic sanitized world, but if we want to tell ourselves that the people who wrote and use old English were not racist and sexist people, we're kidding ourselves, right? Yes, he may have been able to apply to women, but women did not have the right to vote, and no one expected them to have the right to vote. And so we can't just say, well, it could have applied to both people. Well, it might have been able to, but the people who used that language and wrote those documents were absolutely incredibly sexist. Let's not pretend that they were something they were not. And the same thing with racism. And so My proposal is we need to remove this language. I'm wearing my hair, my C.A., my Navajo bun. It's tied in red yarn. One of the reasons it's tied in red yarn is because I I wear that to remind myself every morning when I tie my bun and I, I, I pray to remember missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. There's a crisis throughout Indian country where there are hundreds, thousands of indigenous women and girls who've been reported missing, reported as murdered by their friends and family to law enforcement. And not only have many of these cases not been closed, in many instances they've never been opened. There's literally hundreds, thousands of these women being reported annually and nothing happens. Oftentimes their families are left to search for them themselves. When I was at the Frank Lemaire Native American Presidential Forum, they asked the candidates, they asked Bernie Sanders, they asked um, um, Elizabeth Warren, they asked Julian Castro, they asked Marianne Williamson, they asked Kamala Harris, what they would do about this crisis. And many of them proposed that they would Write a new law or create a new policy to protect this very vulnerable demographic. My argument is when your Declaration of Independence calls Native savages and your Constitution never mentions women, you probably shouldn't be surprised that your Indigenous women go missing or get murdered and society doesn't care. A new law isn't going to fix this problem. The problem with this is the basis for our laws, our foundations, our constitution, our Declaration of Independence. We want to fix the problem of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. We have to change our foundations. And so these are the conversations I'm trying to bring out in this campaign. Right now, after the lynching of of, um, of George Floyd in Minneapolis by by the police department there that grisly murder that we all saw. There is a debate going on about policing and how should our police conduct themselves? Should, how should we even fund our police or should we defund them and have a new way of policing put in place? There's debates over what kind of chokeholds should be allowed. Are President Biden suggesting we shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest? all of these conversations, which are probably not bad conversations to have. But if you read our 13th Amendment, you learn it doesn't actually abolish slavery, it redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of of the criminal justice system. This is the system that's literally killing our native and black men and women today. And so if you want to reform our policing, if you want to reform our criminal justice system, that reform needs to begin with the actual abolishment of slavery. And neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump have any interest in doing that. They would love to talk about what kind of chokeholds to allow or what kind of, what kind of, you know, targets we should put on people, but they do not want to have a a discussion about the foundational level problem. I'm the only candidate in this 2020 race who is calling for the abolishment of slavery and the removing of that clause from our 13th amendment. And so this is where, yeah, we have to deal with our foundations if we want to be able to build this nation where we, the people truly mean to all the people.
0: Wow, Mark, are there, have there been any other um, natives running for president before? Uh, what's what's kind of like the history with with natives and politics? Is there any like major uh, no influence that has been in the past, or are you like are you like the pioneer of this? There's been there there's been one other
1: native who has run for president, and I apologize; his name is slipping my mind right now. Um, but there's been one other uh who's run for president. There was one or two others who have been nominated for vice president but yeah this is this is not something that happens regularly within our country um and I wish it would be a whole lot more common. you know, um, I really like the fact so right now, one of the conversations our campaign's talking about and that our nation's talking about is voting reform, right. And we, we have the Republican Party right now that is working very hard to limit voting. The Republicans know, Donald Trump knows that the more people who vote, the less likely he is to get elected. And so even though we're in a global pandemic and um, it's not safe to, to break social distancing, he is fighting against making mail-in voting, voting by mail, universal because he knows the more people who vote, the less chance he has of winning. So he's, he's raising fears about voter fraud, even though there's very little basis for that, even he has voted by mail in the past. Um, and so he's doing that because he the, the Republican party wants to limit access to the ballot, to the voting booth, because they have a less chance of winning if more people vote. The Democrats, While they're open to having more people vote, they want to actually limit the number of people who can run. Right. So most of the of the the. um, Flack that my campaign gets about running as a third party, as an independent in 2020 doesn't come from Republicans, it comes from Democrats. The Democrats had the most diverse pool of candidates they've ever had in their history running for president this past year. They had more women, more people of color, more members of the LGBTQIA2S plus community. They had one of the most diverse pool of candidates running for the Office of President of the United States in our nation's history. But they require their candidates since 1972, which is right after the civil rights movement when people of color got more access to both running for president and to voting. Ever since 1972, the Democrats have run their presidential politics through Iowa and New Hampshire. Iowa is the 6th widest state in the country. New Hampshire is the fourth. Iowa has the highest percentage of, of, of private lands of any state in the country. New Hampshire has the highest rate of home ownership. Iowa has a state law requiring them to be the first caucus state. New Hampshire has a state law requiring them to be the first primary state. And because the Democrats and the Republicans adhere to those things, they are literally allowing white landowning men to be the gatekeepers for presidential politics. And it's worked very well. Iowa and New Hampshire pretty much removed all the people of color and all the women from the debate stage before the first caucus even happened. It rose, it allowed Joe Biden, who even by his his own wife's admission, was not the best candidate on the issues. She said that. But she said, we have to vote for Joe anyway, because he's the candidate who can win. Why? Because he's the candidate who is the most safe to white landowning men, and it's white landowning men who run the party. And so now we have the most institutionalized, land, white landowning male who rose to the top of all of that incredible diversity, all of that great creative energy, all of those robust debates and ideas they were having, the most uninspiring candidate rose to the top because of how the presidential politics literally centers white landowning men in the campaign.
0: Wow. Wow that's that's massive mark I well first, how can people support you no know, your campaign Mark Charles what can they do what is the best you know way to find out about you know your your yeah. proposals what what do you want to do
1: they can On our website at MarkCharles2020.com, we have a very robust website. We have a policies page, and we are actively rolling out policies every week. Now, I will warn people, we are not like your typical campaign. We are not rolling out. We need this law and this precise policy. We are trying to change the foundations. So every election, we have debate over this and that, all of these things. If you want to look at it as as a house, right? we have debates every year over what color to paint the the rooms and what kind of carpet to put on the floor but my campaign is saying we have cracks in our foundations and so you can debate what color to paint your walls what kind of caulking to put in your windows what kind of carpet put on your floor but until you fix the foundations you're not going to fix the house and so We have been trained to debate things about what the color to paint the walls and the carpet upon the floor, and we've been trained to avoid dealing with the foundational level problems. And my campaign is saying, if we want to fix the house we're living in, we have to start by focusing on the foundation. And so the policies that we're, we're wrestling with are we are trying to change the paradigm of how we talk about politics. I have a, a live stream out there about abortion and I'm 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 trying to change the paradigm of how we talk about abortion and take it out of this binary screaming match that doesn't even talk about the value of life and instead it's it's a debate over who has agency over the woman's body a white landowning male politician are the woman herself. That's the debate we have. That's what we have people screaming at each other on. So I have a live stream out where I'm trying to reframe that whole discussion and proposals of what we need to do to our foundations so we can actually have a discussion, even a political discussion, on the value of life. Right now, we don't have the tools. If you read our Constitution, there's nothing in our Constitution that says we as a nation have a collective value for life at any level. Human life, life of the unborn, life of the woman, or even the environment around us. The assumption is that our values are for exploitation and profit. The way our capitalism works is that the people at the top oppress the labor and the people at the bottom so they can maximize their profits. But we have to change those things. We don't have the tools right now to have a robust debate on the value of life at any level. And so I'm trying to reframe those things. Again, same thing with police reform. Yes, we have to talk about reforming the police, but that discussion has to start with abolishing slavery, not with defining what chokeholds are legal. And so I'm trying to re- help people understand that when they come and look at what we're advocating for as policies, it's not the, the, the detailed plans and bills that most politicians put out. We have to get there at some point, but until we fix the foundations, it it doesn't make any sense to to debate what color to paint the house. Yes, it's an important question to answer. Yes, we have to figure out how we're gonna do air conditioning, how we're gonna do heating, how we're gonna do storage, how we're gonna break up the bedroom. We have to discuss those things, but until we deal with the foundations, which we haven't worked on our foundations, not at this level, and in a long time and so our campaign is trying to reframe that and so when you go to our policy page you will see that we are engaging a different sort of dialogue on our youtube channel we have we have dozens of of youtube live streams up there where i'm talking about different issues and again trying to bring the discussion down to the foundational level trying to change the paradigm that we're having these discussions in we have a lot of material up there I encourage people to listen to watch and to engage with us in these conversations for people who don't know about my campaign, I encourage them. We actually released a year and a half ago, our year ago in May of 2019 when I announced my campaign, we released a nine minute announcement video. That nine minute announcement video even today with the global pandemic. And with all of the the debate on white supremacy and institutionalized racism that we're having today, that campaign video hits those messages directly. And I get emails daily, messages daily on social media from people who are saying, I just found your video and I'm choked up about it. It's so appropriate and you're addressing the issues that we need to talk about as a nation. It is to this day, one of our best campaign tools because it it's honest, it's unifying, it has, it's full of vision. And it's laying out, yes, we have a challenging road ahead, but we can actually get there. We can actually make these changes that we so desperately need to make. And so I encourage people to go online, go to markcharles2020.com, click on the announcement video, and you can, you can watch that video and you can share it. We're encouraging people to donate to our campaign. We, we are, you know, because we're not in the Democrat or Republican parties, our fundraising is nowhere near what their levels are. We are the highest, fundraising independent in the race at least we were Um, I'm not sure what Brock and Kanye have done in the last few weeks since they started running but we've been in the race for almost 14 months now and uh, we've raised over hundred thousand dollars and we are our campaign's growing our social media platform's growing People following us are growing. Uh, there's more discussion about us. It looks like we will be people will be able to vote for us in 41 states. We we expect to be a write-in candidate in 38 states, and to be on the ballot in three to five states. And so we are expecting that in 41 states, people should be able to vote for us, for me, for president. Um, there's about 10 states um, where. We probably won't be able to vote for us because of some of the more restrictive ballot access and due to the pandemic and not being able to collect signatures remotely. Um, We're not gonna be on the ballot in about 10 states, but in 40 other states and the District of Columbia, we expect people will be able to vote for us, which is great news. And it means we still have access to more than 450 votes in the electoral college, which is more than we need to win. So we are very much a viable campaign all the way through to the end. And uh, we are running not as a protest, we are running because we, I truly believe I'm the best candidate in this race and that the nation needs the vision like what we're talking about within our campaign.
0: Awesome, man. I love it. Thank you so much, Mark, for, for giving me an opportunity to talk with you, to learn from you, to talk about these ideas of um, conciliation, and going from we the people to all the people and learning about your your political campaign running for president of the united states some of your you know maybe the struggles that you have uh, gotten through to get there the process uh i just want to say you know for the people that are uh tuning in either on audio or video you know, learn more about Mark Charles. Like you said, go to the website, markcharles2020.com. Uh, find him on YouTube. There's a lot of information right there, too. And also, I want to mention that you have the book called Unsettling Truths, right? Um, that yep. is available. Where can people get? It's like just Amazon or it's go online. to the website? Yeah, they
1: can get it pretty much anywhere. It actually won a... Um, uh, Publishers Weekly starred book review, so it's it's available everywhere. It's uh, getting good reviews, and yeah, they can buy it anywhere you
0: buy books. Cool. Well, Mark, and, and I love that you know one of your like big uh, points that you want to make um, make awareness of is we need to create a common memory. And I think to me personally, I think this is for me creating common memory, sitting here with you, talking about these issues, learning uh, about where you come from, about who you are, about your dual citizenship. To me, this is this is part of that process of creating a common memory. I thank you so much for this time. And because one day when you are the president of the United States, I know that I had this moment with you before, you no, know, stating. I mean, not not uh, physically face to face, but on these digital devices. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. Is there anything else you would like uh, for people to know, or maybe anything you want to mention as a uh, one last thought?
1: Yeah. So we're also on social media. We have our our campaign, Mark Charles Twenty Twenty, is on Facebook. It's on Instagram. It's on TikTok. And people can also follow me on Twitter at Wireless Hogan, um, which is my my personal uh, username. I have that username on most social media platforms as well. But um, yeah, I encourage people to follow us. We are most active on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're getting more active on Twitter or on TikTok. So we're just a huge component of our strategy is uh, reaching out to millennials and to Gen Z. And so we're very active on Instagram, we're very active on TikTok, um, trying to reach out to the, de- the our bases there. And then of course, we are working very hard to reach out to people from the margins. You know, there, there's a lot of people out there who realize at some point in their life, at a very deep level, they 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 came to terms or realized the fact that we the people was not intended to include them. And these are the people we are advocating for. These are the people we are saying, yes, we want to live in a nation where we the people includes all of us. And so um, we are we're seeing that message grow. We're seeing people get on board, especially as this campaign is getting more divisive and people are uninspired by the options they have in front of them. And there's this tiredness of. What do we do about the pandemic? What do we do about these race issues that keep coming up? And they look to one side and they see no vision. They look to the other side and they see divisiveness. And then they find our campaign video and they're like, yes, this is where we want to be. This is the discussion we want to have. This is the vision we want to work with. And what what I'm the biggest challenge that we're, we're helping people get over right now is that we are helping people understand that voting for me is going to feel like a risk. It's gonna feel scary. right? The two-party system has been at work for hundreds of years to maintain the status quo. It's worked hard to say, if you try to step outside of this two-party system, not only is your efforts in vain, but you're actually working counterproductively against the system. And so rather than, than ignoring that, we are helping people understand, yes, supporting this campaign, which is an independent campaign, voting for me is going to feel scary. It is going to feel like a risk, but this is really the only way that we're gonna get the change that we need as a nation. That change is not going to come from the Democrats or from the Republicans. Both those parties are intended to maintain the status quo. If we want deep systemic change, we have to be willing to take a risk and to go outside that system. And so we are encouraging people to take a risk, join our campaign, support our message, share it on your social media and help us get on the ballot in your state, and then vote for us this November. It's gonna take a lot of work, it's gonna take a lot of risk, but we we have an incredible opportunity to build a nation, where for the very first time, we the people truly mean to all the people.
0: So good, Mark. Thank you so much for your courage, your activism, and I want to just thank you again for for allowing me to be here on this talk. You know, I hope that people that are listening, uh, their minds were uh, expounded, that you know their minds were opened a little bit more, and that you know they they take some steps towards bringing change. You know, if that's what they're pursuing in their life in this country, well, here is a very viable option. Uh, so learn more about Mark Charles. Thank you so much, Mark. I uh, really appreciate your time. I hope the best for you in your future and hope I can talk to you uh, no, two years from now, one year from now, and learn more about you know how you are doing.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's been great to be on the show with you and I would love to stay in touch. So let's let's make sure we do a follow-up at some point, even in the next few months.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Christian Podcast. If you liked this episode, share it with friends and family. Make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review whenever you can. You can also visit ChristianPodcast.com to learn more about our show. Hasta la vista.